you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. Well, we are in a series called Amazing Love, and we're going through the book of Hosea. So we're about, we're halfway through now. Uh, So you can turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 8. And we're going to bite a big chunk of scripture off today. Uh, About a chapter, a chapter and a half uh, to go through. I think I, I remember the day that I got married pretty well. I, I mean, it's, it was like 31 years ago, so, you know, it, it was a while ago. But I remember pretty well. It was really hot. It was in June. I was, I was really nervous. I couldn't wait to see Lori, and I couldn't wait to start our life together. Um, so, you know, a lot of things changed that day. You know, where I lived uh, how I was uh, making decisions, how I spent my time and my money, how I thought about my future. You know, all of that changed, all of that and more, all because we made a promise to each other. And uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to read to you the promise that we made to each other. This is the promise Lori and I made to each other on our wedding day, June 24th, 1989, I had to go pull out the wedding video to get this, so, you know, I didn't remember it. And it almost didn't work. I'm going to have to do something about that. But here's what, I, here's what we promised. Do you, Greg, promise to cherish, honor, and protect Lori? To share with her equally the responsibilities for building your lives? Do you promise to appreciate, encourage, and support Lori's interests? Do you promise to share with her honestly your hopes, your love, your feelings, and your dreams, and all of this in a way that may help her know with clarity that your love for her is unique from all others. And then I said, I do. And then I put a ring on her finger and I said, I wed thee, Lori, in the name of God the Father who made us. I pledge all my heart's sincere love in the name of Christ who lived that way. I will share both my earthly possessions and myself in the name of the Holy Spirit, which means loving unselfishness. Nobody makes a promise like that or something similar to that before God and in front of a a lot of people without then going about making changes in their life to keep that promise. You know, in fact, if you don't make some big adjustments after that day, the promise isn't going to last very long. And then a lot of pain and hurt come. And then eventually a loss. A loss of life. And so uh, here we are in Hosea. And in their day, they've got this promise that they are relating to God. And it's an 800 year old promise that they made to him. And they had their ups and downs in keeping the covenant of this promise. Until they didn't know the difference between the ups and downs and everything was down. And so God spells out their downs and he tells them what he had to do about it based on the promise that they had made to each other. Now the crazy thing that we want to remember is after 800 years of ups and downs and unfaithfulness and loss and forgetfulness, God would have still taken them back 
had they turned around and repented. No questions asked. After 800 years of breaking the promise, one act of turning back, he would have wrapped his arms around him. That is some amazing love. Now this promise that we've got with God, it's different than the promise that they had with God. Okay, our promise, it doesn't depend on our ups and downs to keep it. It depends on Jesus. And he has made forever with God a reality for us because of what he did. See, he never had any, any downs with God. He was faithful. He never had any, any problem, any offense made to his heavenly father. So in light of that amazing love and the price that he paid to give it to us, to give us forgiveness of our sins, there are some ways that we want to live um, in light of that love. And Hosea's words here are going to help us find out what those ways are. So let's pray right now and ask God to, to work in our hearts as we hear this. Father God, we just thank you again for your word uh, today. It is a treasure to us. It is your voice. It is your encouragement. It is your comfort. It is your light. It is, it is hope uh, to, our, to our, our hearts. And today, Lord, as we, as we hear about uh, all the ways that Israel did it wrong, Uh, that you would help us learn from that and do it right as we follow you. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so chapter 8, it it gets started, and there's this description in here of life independent of God. Life independent of God. And so that's going to help us live in light of God's amazing love by living a life depending on, on God. So we're going to read verses 1, 1 to 6 here to get started. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So in the first three verses there, there's a lot of brokenness going on that God brings up. He starts off with a warning. You know, sound the trumpet, you know, sound the warning call. Uh, death is coming over the house of Israel like a vulture. You know, we see the vultures, you know, they fly around in the sky because something's died on the ground. That's what, that's what God's talking about. That's the image. And then he says this, they've broken the promise. They've broken the law. They've broken their relationship with me. They have broken desires and their enemies are going to overtake them. And so they made this promise to me back in, in uh, Exodus for us, back in Mount, Mount Sinai. They, they made this promise. I wrote, I wrote down what I wanted them to do on these tablets of stone. There were ten things I wanted them, them to do. And then we had a ceremony and they said, I do. But they really didn't. They never did it. They didn't do what I told them to do. And so 100 years later and there's been a lot of forgiveness and restarts and they, they're saying they claim to know me, they cry out to me because they're Israelites, because of their heritage. I mean, these are, these are God's people. But they've built idols with their own hands, and that's evidence enough for their destruction. 
He says, he says they've rejected the good that I wanted to give them through that promise. They've rejected that. They've spurned the good because they wanted to get what they wanted to get on their own. They wanted something different. Now in verses 4 to 6, God gives them examples of what they did, of, of some, some of their independent life. So he says they selected kings and princes, but they didn't do it without consulting him. And so they set up their leaders. They built idols. Um, so that's the evidence for their destruction. So they've got man-made leaders and they got man-made religion. And so they're broken, living lives independent of God, even though they're crying out to him. And so how, how does God respond to that? He says, I reject your idols. And he says, I'm angry with you. And then he, te- he, he says, uh, he, he longs for them to be innocent. He says, how long will you be incapable of innocence? And, and he, all this because they didn't live up to their end of the, end of the promise. You know, when God calls us into relationship, he calls us into a life of depending on him. Depending on him. And it's, it's all over the Bible. Here's a few verses for you. Isaiah 41, verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. That's a, that's a call to depend on him. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. That's Psalm 37, 4 to 6. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a life of depending on God. That's what we're called to. As, as we got this amazing love that's been, been given to us, we want to live our lives depending on Him. And we want to depend on God to be our everything. Our, our, our everything. But if, if, you, if you start thinking about it, you start thinking about your life, how much of our life really depends on God? How much? I mean, we live in a very prosperous land. And most of us don't have to depend on God for a whole lot of anything except what happens after we die. Right? I mean, we've got everything we need. We've got food in our refrigerators. We've got refrigerators. We've got doctors who tell who we go to when we get sick. We've got cars that run us around from here to there most of the time. We've got retirement accounts that are building up, so they're there to help us when we stop working, and then Social Security kicks in. Maybe. Depend, you know, depending on God is hard to do when you don't have anything but God. It's hard to do then. But depending on God when you've got everything is even harder. It's even harder. Because we can see and touch and taste and count these things that are here that we're leaning on. And so think about that question. How much of my life am I depending on God? How much of it? Because see, there's some real problems that creep up for us when we don't depend on God for, for, for our life. You know, so the, the things that, that bring us comfort, the things that make us feel safe, the things that we look to for guidance, these things can become idols in our life. Okay? So I asked you a couple weeks ago, what do you crave more than God in your life? What do you crave more than, that, more than Him? And if, if you answered that question, or if you could answer it, you reveal an idol in your life. Well, today the question is, what are you depending on in your life other than God? And if you can answer that question, there's an idol there. There's an idol there. God doesn't want us to depend on anything or anyone but Him. And I thought, in light of His love, why, why should we? 
in light of the love that we've received from him, why should we depend on anything or anyone else? I mean, he's promised so much to us. He's promised to take care of us. He's promised to, to meet our needs. He's promised to take care of our future, to fight for us. He's told us what happens when we place our trust in other things, that disaster comes. He's told us how to love him. It was that first commandment. That first commandment, ten commandments. You shall not have any other gods before me. And so that doesn't mean that God is on the top of the ladder of gods in your life. That means that there are no other gods at all in your life. None. And so God said to the Israelites, he said that they had spurned the good. And so that meant that they were rejecting the blessings of the promise they'd made uh, back in, in Mount Sinai. You know, that, that was like, you know, Israelites, you do this, you follow my law and I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. Okay, that was, that was the promise. And so God's saying, you're rejecting that so you can go and, and get what you want. So you're living this independent life, spiritual and physical things. You're looking elsewhere for the supply. And then God answers their spurning with his spurning. I'm going to spurn their idols and going to, I'm going to break their uh, calf to pieces. So you, you think about this, you think, well, what am I, in my life, what am I holding on to with a tight grip? What do I sacrifice time and money for in my life? What do I search for on the internet all the time? What am I leaning on for life? What person, what thing? Because whatever it is, it has to go. And if you won't get rid of it, somehow or another, God will. He is a jealous God. He wants to be your, your only God. He wants us to depend on Him. Not just for life after death, but for life in this, in this life. You know, Lake Tahoe. Anybody ever been to Lake Tahoe? I've not been. Uh, it is the eighth deepest lake in the world. Back in, on July 4th in 1875, there were these two guys who had nothing better to do. And so they went out on a fishing boat. And they took a bottle, champagne bottle, weighted, put a line around it. And they lowered it over their side of their boat. And they found out that the deepest point of Lake Tahoe was 1,645 feet. And then later on, they invented sonar and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirmed that the depth of Lake Tahoe was 1,645 feet deep. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that or not, but here's what, here's what that means. If you took Lake Tahoe and you turned it up on its side and spilled out all the water, it would cover the state of California 14 and a half inches deep with water. So there's enough water in Lake Tahoe to give every person in the U.S. 50 gallons of water every day for five years. Just the evaporation from Tahoe over the course of one year could give Los Angeles enough water to survive. So there's a lot of water. Not one person is going to ever exhaust the resources of Lake Tahoe, even if they filled up a glass every minute of every hour of every day for the rest of their life and they drank. They would never exhaust the resources of Lake Tahoe. Well, think about this. Every person that has ever lived in the history of the world would never be able to exhaust the resources of God. 
No matter how often they would, they would go to him and get filled up. They would never do that. All people for all time. Think about that. <laughs> now, we know that the Bible tells us that that is true. You know, God is sovereign. God reigns. He's all powerful. He's almighty. He's all of these things. But you know what? We never take our, our bottle of faith and put our fishing line on it and drop it overboard and let it, you know, sink down into the depths of God's love to find out how deep his love goes for us. We're just kind of content to take our water bottles out of the cooler that we brought with us and drink that instead of seeing how deep this resource of God is in our life and depending on him. We don't ever taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, living in light of amazing love we have, that we have been given, we need to learn to live a life of depending on God. And so that means we're going to throw our water bottle idols overboard. And we're going to take our bottle of faith and we're going to drop it down into God until we start to feel that dependence on Him in whatever area of life that you've got going on. And then you just stay there and wait on Him. You wait on Him to act. And so that, that could mean doing something that takes you outside of your comfort zone. You know, where you're, you're depending on God for, for what happens. Uh, take that bottle of faith, sink it deeper into God. Take your hands off your dream for the future and give your future to God and see what He does. Take the pressure off being in the know on social media and just fast from that for a few days, maybe a week, maybe a month and see how much more your life is as, you know, God brings you the information that you need to know. Take the pressure off being a world changer for God and just... Just let him use you to brighten the corner where you are. Depend on him to bring the ministry to you. And he will. He will. We want to stop making a name for ourselves. Stop making a life for ourselves. And start depending on God to give us those things. What does the Bible say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, right? It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time he will lift you up. It says, in Him we live and move and have our being. How immersed in God do we need to be to have that going on in our life? Huh? Let that bottle sink deep down into Him. Depend on Him. It's how we want to live based on the love that we have been given. Now, Isaiah keeps going. And his words are going to break up, uh, bring up another way for us to live. And this is remembering your God. And so, verses uh, 7 to 14. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now I will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces 
And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. And so I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her stronghold. So again, in verses 7 to 10, we're getting, God is describing the antics of his people. They're running to and fro to different nations trying to find a friend to help protect them from stronger nations. And so if you think about those reality TV shows, you know, where you, uh, all these people show up on an island and then you get voted off every week and then what are they doing? They're making friends, right? Hey, you watch my back, I'll watch yours, you know, and then the next week they're, you know, stabbing somebody in the back. You know, that's what Israel was doing, okay? He was making alliances, trying to, to save their, to save their skin. So God calls it sowing the wind. And he says that's really just foolish behavior for people who know the living God. And so in the principle of what you sow is what you reap, that's a common principle. God says, you've sowed the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And so that was like a, a description of um, his destructive force, that when his judgment comes on them, um, it's, it's not going to be pretty. And he's going to use the very nations they were trying to hook up with, Assyria and Egypt. So Assyria was going to overtake them, and Egypt was going to get their, their refugees. So their people they tried to make friends with, they gave money to, are going to end up basically over them. So in verses 11 to 13, God gives him his perspective on their worship. He says, they built more uh, more altars for for sacrificing uh, for their sins, but those ended up just being more places to sin. So if you think about what their history is, God has already told them what acceptable worship is, how they should worship him at the temple. And he's already told them how they were supposed to sacrifice um, their animals for their forgiveness of their sins. They, he's already told them all that. He's already prescribed all of that. But his people have brought in these pagan practices and they started doing things differently. And so now it's all a mess. He says, I could write 10,000 more laws and you would not you would think they were strange. You, you, would, you would not accept them. And so, as we read there, it sounded like they were in the habit of making the, the sacrificial lamb or the animal that they sacrificed, they made it into a habit to eat that. When they were supposed to burn it up, it was supposed to be an offering for God. And so verse 14 kind of summarizes uh, the problem. It says they have forgotten their maker. So they don't care uh, what I say, they think nothing will happen to them. They have uh, created a way to worship that is more about them than it is about God. And so they're finding security now, not in God, but in the, in the strongholds of their cities and all of these things. And God says he's going to bring fire on them. So they had forgotten their maker. You know, forgetting something is pretty easy to do, especially when we really want to remember it. You can just ask Oliver Naylor. Ever heard of Oliver Naylor? Well, it's just because you missed the article in this British newspaper. This is how this article, this is how this article opened up. Heart, heartfelt commiseration to Dorothy Naylor of Plymouth, whose recent day trip to Bridgewater was spoiled when her husband Oliver left her on the front court of a garage and drove 17 miles before noticing his wife was not in the car. <laughs> Mrs. Naylor said, I couldn't believe he'd gone without me. Normally I am riding in the back seat, but uh, we're usually talking on the way. The couple, both in their 70s, had pulled into a garage to change a a tire. Mr. Naylor drove off and didn't notice his wife's absence until he arrived in Bridgewater and he stopped in town and asked his wife, hey, where do you want to get out? When she didn't answer, he, he, he noticed that she wasn't there. And then the paper added that the couple had been married for 40 years. You know, if Oliver is capable of forgetting his wife of 40 years... 
You know, somebody that he has been able to physically see and touch and listen to for 14,600 days, most of those days, if he's capable of forgetting her, how easy it is, it, is it for people to forget God who they have not seen? How easy is it to forget? And over and over in the Bible, God is, is telling his people, remember me. Remember me. Here's an example in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18 to 19. It says, Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this, if you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. And then they ended up forgetting him. So living in light of this amazing love that we've received from God, the last thing that we want to do is forget Him in our, in our life. And so we want to build in practices and, and activities and rhythms of our life that help us remember who He is. So here's an example. Practicing a Sabbath is a good example. Of remembering God. In Exodus chapter 20, this is where the Sabbath came from. This is part of the Ten Commandments. It says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So that's where the idea of Sabbath came from, because God did it when he made the world. Now, many years ago, our family decided that we would worship God by keeping a Sabbath day in our week. Now I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that I can come up with enough work to do seven days a week. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty sure I could fill seven days a week with work. I would be 14% more productive adding a day of work. I would have 14% more money in my accounts. I would be able to give 14% more to God if I did work that extra day. But God told us to remember him by making one of our days not about work. And so, remembering the Sabbath is about worship. Remembering him by resting just like he did when he created the world. And so what that tells us is that when we hear this remembering God, it's not just that we have this idea about him, but it's going to cost us something. It's going to be honoring him. It's going to be worshiping him when we remember him in our life. And so really, if you're remembering God doesn't cost you anything, you're really not remembering him, remembering him like he wants you to. The Israelites were remembering him. They were still calling out to him. Hey, God, hey, remember us, your children. But they weren't doing what he said. It wasn't costing them anything. Now, for our family, a Sabbath meant that we were not going to participate in competitive sports that happened on the weekend for our kids. And many moons ago, I had my kids on a swim team. And they were getting better at swimming. It started off just to, you know, be good, be good swimmers. And then they got good enough to be in swim meets. And then all of a sudden, swim meets started happening on the, on the weekend, on a Sunday. And it, you know, conflicted with what was going on. And so Lori and I got together and we just decided that, you know what? It is more important for our kids to be in church than it is for them to be in the pool. And so we gave it up. Now, I want to tell you, that was a hard decision. It makes a lot of people feel guilty. 
I just want to talk about this. This is not your decision, it's my decision. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was a swimmer, you know, girl. I still love the smell of chlorine. You know, I still love the idea of my kids getting on a platform and getting a medal for swimming in the pool. Love that idea. So it hurt to do that. But, you know, it was a small sacrifice to honor the one who loved me like that. Small sacrifice. In 1998, it's my first time to go down to Brazil in the summer. And I went with a team from Brookville Road and we were there for 10 days and we were, we were building a gym onto a church in Carpina, Brazil so they could do sports ministry. And so every day I'm in a hole, you know, digging a footer. <laughs> and then in the evenings we were in churches worshiping with them. Sunday comes around and we go to church and then a few of us went back to our rooms and we changed our clothes to go work at the church. Pastor Telly comes up to us and he told us to stand down. Pastor Telly's the lead pastor down there in Brazil. And he said, no, we, we, don't, we don't want to work today. Today is the day we want to honor the Lord with our rest. And in my head I thought, Telly, I didn't come all this way. I only got ten days here. The last thing I want to do is rest. But he was right. He said he was willing to sacrifice one of, one of our days of productivity on that building so that we could honor the Lord. And you know, when, when Americans are in Brazil, everybody's watching you. And so he was also concerned about that. He wanted, he wanted people that were watching us to see that Sunday wasn't just like any other day in our life. It's a Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath is just one example of how you can remember the Lord. The other six days, he's called us to work. You know, do our ordinary work the other six days. And, and he's called us to do that remembering the Lord while we work. And so that means, you know, things are going to go a little bit different. You know, uh, when I'm cutting my grass, it's going to be a different cut if it's the Lord's grass or if it's my grass. You understand? I always tell the kids, you know, that's God's lawn. You need to cut that like, you know, Jesus is watching. It's his lawn. How do you want it to be cut? And so this is where it comes from. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. And that the master you are serving is Christ. And so you're going you're gonna to work a little bit harder. You're going to be a little bit more attention to detail when it's God's grass. You know, rather than than yours. And he blesses that kind of work. Does your remembering God cost you anything? Does it cost you anything? Because, you know, you should remember God when you're serving others. You should remember God when you're under temptation. You should remember Him when you give to Him. You should remember Him when you make decisions. Remember God when you eat your meals. Remember Him when you vote. Remember Him when you drive. Remember Him when your grocery cart is full. When you celebrate. When you get a raise. When you get an answer to prayer. Remember Him. Because the last thing we want to do as people who have been loved like that is forget Him. All right, we're almost, well, we're jumping into chapter 9. Almost, like, we're a third of the way. This is a big chunk here, big chunk. And God's getting into the punishments that are coming on God's people. But what it's going to do for us is it's going to help us to live in light, uh, to live in a, in a way of hoping in God. Okay, so rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. 
You have loved the prostitutes' wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine, vat shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of a recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in, in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. So there's a lot of loss in those verses. Israel is losing a lot of things. God's people are about to lose everything because they've forgotten God. So he goes, in summary, this is, this is what they're losing. They're going to have no way to provide for themselves. They're going to have no way to stay in their homes. They're going to have no way to worship God. They're going to have no way to celebrate the feasts of God, which are a big thing in Israel's you know, community in, in their life. They would have no way to repent because they thought God's prophets were crazy. They said, ah, oh, those guys are just crazy. God sent a messenger. Ah, I don't need to listen to them. They're nuts. They were the voice to get them to repent. So they've got no way to repent. No way to escape the punishment of God. They're losing their independence. They're losing their identity. They're losing their land. They're losing God's mercy. And some of them are losing the, their life. All because they couldn't keep up their end of the promise. You know that question that God asked back in chapter 8, verse 5. He said this, How long will you be incapable of innocence? And he knew the answer to that question before he asked it. And the answer was, always. They will always be incapable of innocence. And he, he knew that. Left to themselves, left to ourselves, we won't follow God. We won't do what he says. And even if we did, we wouldn't be able to do it to the level of satisfaction to have a relationship with him. He's perfect. He's holy. We could never mess up. And that's what is required to be able to be in relationship with him. So when you look at chapter 9 and you hear these things that Israel is losing, what you are able to see there is what your future looks like without God in your life. It's full of loss. And you get to that last part of, of verse 9, the, the last half of verse 9. It says, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. So God will not forget that we forgot him. He will not forget that we lived independently of him. He's going to remember that and he's going to punish our sins when our life is over on this planet. And so there is no hope for us to have life after death with God if we do not have life before death with God. You get that? If you don't have life with God right now, you're not going to have life with God after death. And he, he knew that. God knows that. 
And so what did he do about it? He made a different promise. It's a new promise. It's a, it's a better promise. Except this one didn't depend on us to keep our side of it. You can find the promise in Jeremiah 31. 31 to 34. Listen to this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Now that last verse says exactly the opposite that Hosea 9 9 did. In Hosea 9, 9, he remembers and he punishes the sins. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God forgives and forgets. Which promise do you want to be clinging to when your life is over? Which one do you want to be clinging to? The promise where God remembers and punishes? Or the one where he forgives and forgets? Well, how do you get get in on the new promise? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. See, for God to make that kind of offer to people, to to be able to make a better promise, He had to provide what was necessary to be able to make it. And what was necessary was a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all people. And so He loved us so much that He sent His only Son to come here, live our life without sin, and then to die for us on a cross to give us that life, to give us forgiveness. Now, before Jesus went to the cross, he was celebrating a meal with his disciples called the Passover meal. And that meal was to help them remember how God rescued them from death back in Egypt. He sent the angel of death over all all the land, but he passed over the ones that had the blood on the doorposts of their houses. So it was called the Passover So he's helping them remember that they were rescued from death by the blood of a lamb. Well, Jesus changed this meal, the meaning of it, to help his followers remember that his blood was rescuing them from spiritual death. And so here's how it went during that meal. You hear this once a month. The Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new agreement between God and you that has been established and set in motion by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. And then he went to the cross. And he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. So that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Anyone. Not people who deserved it. Not people who are good people. Not people who are church people. You know, people who have done all kinds of crazy things on Saturday night. Said all kinds of bad things on the way into church this morning. (laughs) Anyone. 
That is amazing. That is amazing love. And when you believe in Jesus, your whole life changes. Your whole life changes. Your past changes. God, yeah, you think it's in the past. How does it change? God forgives your past because of Jesus. And then in the present, God gets up close and personal with you. (laughs) Gives you the Holy Spirit to indwell you because of Jesus. Then He gives you a hope and a future with Him forever because of Jesus. And then all of God's promises in the Bible are yes and amen because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And so, that means we get to live a life where we're not living in fear or dread or despair because death is coming, because death is coming. We're, it's, it's, it's closer now than it was when we first got here. We're not living in fear or dread or despair of that. What are we living in? We're living hoping in God because of Jesus. It's not up to us. Have you gotten in on the new promise? All your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your future rest in Jesus Christ and nothing else. He's loved us with an amazing love. He came today and He's calling you today to live a life depending on Him, remembering Him and hoping in Him. That's what He wants for us. To live that kind of life. Now I've got a song to play for you. Uh, it's on a video in the PowerPoint. Our PowerPoint goes kind of crazy, I think, you know, at times. So it might not play the whole way. But it's an old hymn. And uh, you're welcome to sing it. It'll have the words up there. And the words to this hymn are so rich with truth. And they have such a great chorus that you can belt out if you know this amazing love. So if you do, belt it out. You'll learn it if you don't know it. Go ahead and stand. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are going through this book to try and understand and know the depths of your amazing love. And we look back at these uh, people that you rescued from slavery and you gave promises to and You gave a land and protected them and fought for them and all these things. And we can see reflections of ourself there, Lord. Even this week, how we lived independently of you and how we forgot you. Lord, forgive us for walking that way. And we come to you by way of the cross, by way of Jesus. And thank you. And He loved us so much. And He bridged the gap for us. And now anybody, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, where we've been, anybody can come to You through Him by believing. I pray if there's somebody here today, Lord, that doesn't feel that amazing love, doesn't know life with You today, that they take that, take that step of faith and say yes to the new promise in Jesus and invite Him into their life. I pray for us that we're here following you, Lord, doing our best, trying to, uh, trying to live up to that amazing love. I mean, what kind of worship, what kind of honor do we owe you? Way more than we're doing. 
Lord, fill us up with your Holy Spirit who is the power in us to live the kind of life that you deserve. We just lean into him today believing that our sins are forgiven and forgotten, that his fire and fruit is what we need to cause this kingdom to grow while we wait for you with an eye on the sky. So Lord, send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit, full of gratitude for that new promise in Jesus. Bring it alive to us again. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.